Hello and welcome to Learning to Fly, the Science for the Anthropocene podcast brought to you from Lancaster Environment Centre of Lancaster University. I'm David Tyfield and I'm the Professor of Sustainable Transitions and Political Economy at LEC. And welcome to episode 11, where we're joined by one of the most exciting and prestigious uh, thinkers on a key issue for a science for the Anthropocene, which is um, insect life. So today we're joined by Dave Goulson. Dave Goulson is Professor of Biology at the University of Sussex, specialising in bee ecology. He has published uh, an enormous number of articles, over 300, on ecology and conservation of bumblebees and other insects. And he's also the author of numerous popular science books, including Bumblebees, Their Behaviour, Ecology and Conservation in 2010, and then a rush of books, including the Sunday Times bestseller, A Sting in the Tail, which has been translated into 17 languages. Most recently, he published the sobering Silent Earth in August 2021. Dave founded the Bumblebee Conservation Trust in 2006, which is a charity now with over 12,000 members. And in 2015, he was named number eight in the BBC Wildlife magazine's list of top 50 most influential people in conservation. He's also a trustee of the Pesticide Action Network and an ambassador for the UK Wildlife Trusts. Dave, welcome. Good morning, David. How are you doing? Yeah, really pleased to be speaking with you about this. Uh, I I can't tell you how much uh, I enjoyed uh, reading your works. Though, of course, some of it is, as I say, sobering, if not uh, stronger than that. Uh, So maybe enjoy isn't quite the right word. But anyway, really delighted to be having this conversation about bees and insects and uh, averting, let's hope, the insect apocalypse. Now, you may know that this podcast has uh, some standardised questions at the beginning and the end. So let's kick straight off uh, with the the first question, which is, is your science, which I would would guess would be entomology, is is it fit for purpose in the 21st century? Uh, Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I suppose broadly, yes, but it, it has its failings. Um, I, partly it's just underfunded. Uh, of course, all scientists say that. Um, but as a proportion of research spend, uh, the kind of traditional ecological sciences um, have uh, received much less funding than they used to. Uh, there's a lot more money going into kind of biotech and uh, genetics and so on, um, which I think is a shame. I, I, of course, I would say that yeah. as someone who loves insects. But uh, I, I, there's so much we don't know, and we're really just still scratching the surface. You know, we haven't even named the majority of insects that we think exist in the world. Uh, so, so you know, we're we're kind of um, uh, just at the very beginning. And it, 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 to me, there's there's so much we don't understand that uh, it, we need more funding, of course. Um, there's also another another issue which worries me more broadly about what's happening in sort of my area yes which is that there's a lot of fake news about there's science science is so reliant on honesty we all have to assume that everybody's honestly genuinely reporting what they find in an accurate and as far as they can unbiased way but when there are huge financial interests involved in the outcome of research which sadly there sometimes are when it comes to 
for example, research on pesticides uh, and their effects on insects, then it's really easy for the res for research to become corrupted, essentially. And and science doesn't really know how to handle that, I don't think. That's uh, very interesting. And I hope we'll touch on some of those issues uh, as we go through. Let's go from that then to maybe a, a lighter introduction for, for you and for our listeners, which is that uh, you write uh, with boundless enthusiasm about insects in, in your many books. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this field and, and these questions. Um, and, and in particular, I'd be interested in how, when and where, why you, know, you decided to spend time on popular writing instead of just, as it were, focusing on your core research. So I, I, I've been always, I've, I've been interested in insects since I was a child and I can't really explain why. Uh, just, you know, some kids are interested in dinosaurs or trains and I was just always fascinated by insects and some of my earliest memories are collecting when I was at primary school, I, I found some little yellow and black stripy caterpillars on the, the weeds on the edge of the school playground. And I, I gathered them up in my lunchbox and took them home. And I, I think I probably killed them all, but <laughs> I, I got some more. And eventually I managed to get them to, to metamorphose into, the, into these beautiful red and black moths, which some people might recognize as cinnabar moths from the description. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of magic. And uh, I've been hooked ever since, really, and I, you know, it's been quite a privilege to be able to make a career out of your childhood hobby. But as for the popular writing, uh, I, I did it because I was frustrated. I was working in, in the field of insect conservation, and it seemed to me that nobody was paying much attention to, to what the scientists were saying. And we'll, I, well, I guess we'll come back to this, but yeah. you know, it's a very applied field. But bumblebees are my speciality, and many of them are, are declining precipitously. And it didn't seem like anyone was paying any attention. And, and it, I, I wanted to convey what we understood about um, the importance of these creatures and, and the, the peril they were in to a bigger audience, to get, basically to try and get people to do something. But actually, I discovered I, I rather enjoy it. It's, it's <laughs> much easier. Uh, it's much more fun writing for a, a, a popular audience than, it, you know, scientific papers, they are so dull. You have, you have to be so precise and careful. With every word has to be sort of agonized over. Whereas in a, in a book for a, a popular audience, you can have opinions, you can, you can come up with ideas, you don't have to justify every last thing you, you say. And so there's a lot of freedom there, which, and you can tell anecdotes, you can, you can, you can tell jokes, you know, you can have fun with it. Um, so I, I, I would, you know, encourage all scientists to have a go and they might find they enjoy it too. That's great. Let, let's get to then some of the, um, the, the bad news that we're going to have to go through here. And just a couple of uh, anecdotes over the last two days. Obviously, I've been thinking about preparation for uh, this conversation today. Uh, the first thing is that I, I received a, uh, you know, like everybody, uh, spam in my inbox, in my email inbox. Uh, but one that I received over the, uh, the last couple of days, which I've not seen before, simply said, eliminate bugs fast. Uh, call now for a free quote. So uh, th th this, I think, sort of captures something about the the uh, the, the general sort of uh, attitude to insects. Uh, another one was that I walk my dog on a daily basis, and uh, walking him the other day uh, in the the blistering heat, 
uh, of uh, even the late afternoon, um, I was bitten twice on both my wrists uh, by something uh, like a horsefly. I'm afraid I, I don't know what it was. I don't think it was a horsefly. It didn't hurt that much. But I, my, my, my wrists are currently very itchy. On the other hand, I, I've only seen a, a single butterfly all year. So I think this points, I think, quite nicely to this recent book of yours, um, Silent Earth, uh, which is subtitled Averting the Insect Apocalypse. And, of course, there's a clear and explicit homage in that title to Rachel Carson's watershed book, uh, Silent Spring. Now, I found that the book pulled no punches regarding the dire state of uh, insect life um, as a result of human activity. And you list study after study, uh, which shows species after species in place after place experiencing uh, monumental declines. Now, just as we've seen happen also in wild mammals, you, you list uh, a, a statistic that uh, wild mammals now only amount to 4% of total mammal biomass, with livestock 60% and humans 36%. And just a quick plug there, we had an excellent discussion a couple of uh, episodes ago about chickens. Um, so if mammal, if wild mammal, you know, charismatic fauna has fallen some 83% through civilization, uh, we can uh, sort of, uh, it's no surprise that small, possibly irritating insects do not uh, elicit the same, uh, e even the same attention. Um, so Let's start with that really bad news. How bad are insect declines and, and what are their current trends? So I guess, first of all, I have to acknowledge how patchy the data are that um, we know of over a million species of insect. And as I alluded earlier, there are probably several million that we haven't even discovered yet. Mm -hmm. um, but even for the ones that we've named, um, there is no long-term monitoring for the large majority of known insect species. Um, there's just not the resources available to do it, sadly. Um, but we do have a number of studies, often focused on specific insect groups from different scattered geographic regions of the world, but mostly Europe and North America. And they pretty much all show declines uh, at varying rates. Some of the more dramatic studies, uh, there was one from Germany published in 2017, which found used uh, things called malaise traps to catch flying insects. And they found a 76% decline in the biomass of flying insects over a 26-year period. And that was actually on nature reserves. Um, uh, so, and there's nothing to suggest that Germany is, is unusual in that respect. Um, one of the longest data sets we have is for UK butterflies and they're down about 50% since 1976 so not quite so dramatic as the German data. An aspect of this that, that is perhaps most disturbing is that the earliest data we have on insect populations go back to the 1970s um, but these declines almost certainly started long long before that. The, the drivers of insect declines, things like industrialization of farming, began in the beginning of the 20th century and accelerated in the 1940s with the introduction of pesticides. But we have no data at all from back then. So we're probably measuring the tail end of much bigger declines. And I mean, the best global estimates we have um, suggest that insect populations on average are declining by something like one to two percent per year right now which perhaps doesn't sound like that much but when you see it on the scale of a human lifetime or mm. 
reflect on the fact that insects have probably been declining for at least 80 years, then suddenly one or 2% a year starts to look like a lot. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, some of the other really key points that you, you make in the book are that there seem to be some progress being made in some parts of the world, for instance, around EU regulation. But the the vast majority of the world is is really not paying much attention to this issue at all or is continuing with uh, some of the causes which we'll get to. And would it even be fair to say that the trends, they're certainly not slowing down? Is is that true? I would be very surprised if they're slowing down Mm. um, because we're we're continuing to do all the things that that are driving these declines, uh, sadly. So uh, I I think if I had to guess, I'd say they're more likely to be accelerating than decelerating. But the data are too uncertain. And an added feature of insect populations is they're incredibly noisy, wobbly from one week to the next, depending on what the weather's doing. Interesting. And so discerning long-term trends from short-term blips is is really difficult. So it's hard to tell the exact shape of a of a you know of a curve when it's when it's as noisy as it is. And I, I mean, just as an example, this spring, everyone on social media was saying, "I haven't seen any bees." You know, where have all the bees gone? Um, and they definitely had a, a a very poor start to the year, probably driven by the drought last summer. But they seem to have come back from from that. It's it, it's the long term trends that, of course, are what really matter. Um, interesting. Yes. Thanks. So, of course, the, the the next question which follows then is, you know, wh- why does this matter? And I, I don't want to put to you the, the the question uh, which uh, you, you say you get regularly, in which I think in one of your books you you quote Aldo Leopold um, to this effect about saying, you know. The most stupid question about an insect is what is it for, or what is it good for. Uh, so I, I don't. Yeah, want... although don't don't ask that then. Fine. No. <laughs> Sorry, I, uh, keep going. I, I, I won't ask you know, what what are insects for, but uh, rather the other way around. Why do these ins? Why do these insect declines uh, matter uh, for us and for life on Earth? And you know, it, uh, of course, last and by no means least, in themselves. Yeah. So of course. I mean, insects are crucial to the to the kind of functioning of of ecosystems. They make up the bulk of life on Earth. About seventy percent of all the species we know of are insects. Mm. Um, they're food for the majority of the other species that aren't insects. Most birds, bats, reptiles, amphibians, fit, a lot of freshwater fish all eat insects. So if the insects go, then then they go, mm. um, and they they perform all sorts of other vital roles in ecosystems, things like um, recycling cow pats, dead trees, dead bodies, leaves, and so on, keeping the soil healthy, keep controlling pest uh, populations, um, distributing seeds, and so on and so on. And of course, pollination is most of the other things I've mentioned. Uh, The majority of people are completely oblivious of the role insects play and its importance. But pollination is one thing that I think is kind of successfully crept into the public consciousness and most people are aware that bees in particular perform a, uh, an important role um of course it's not just bees in reality pollination is done by thousands of species of insect mm-hmm. um but they in, between them pollinate 80 percent of the world's plants and about 75 percent of the different crops we grow in the world uh, so we have a you know a very direct 
link to the health of insect populations. If if they go, it sounds dramatic, but if they go, we go. You know, so yes. love them or loathe them, we all need them. Yes, and 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 as you describe there, I mean that they, they they seem to be doing all kinds of absolutely essential dirty jobs uh, that we need we need uh, to happen like like as you say the the clearing up of uh, of all those cowpats from those 30 uh, those 60 percent of uh, of mammals that are livestock um, i mean you have this great quotation from the enormously important ecologist eo wilson that without humanity life would probably bounce back quite quickly but without insects, uh, the entire environment would collapse into chaos. And that obviously sounds very much the case from what you were just telling us there. You've said that your mission in life is to persuade people to love insects, which, of course, is another aspect of why this matters, uh, that if these things are going, that they matter in themselves. And I see this really as a, a twofold task, which is both one of education, public education regarding uh, the extent and the, the the dangers of the ongoing uh, insect apocalypse, but also about actually appreciating, uh, appreciating insects for themselves. And I get the very strong sense from your writing that uh, you've decided that this latter point about just appreciating insects is not a later and harder task, but in many ways the primary one. Have I understood that correctly? And, and, and why, do you th- why do you come to that conclusion? Yeah, you, I think you have correctly discerned where my thinking's been going in recent years. You know, I trotted out these arguments about the sort of utility and the importance of insects so many times. Uh, and, and of course, it's true. And perhaps for some people that have no interest at all in the natural world, those are the best arguments. But for me, I guess what, what, what worries me about these sort of practical arguments are that they aren't why I care about insects. Um, most of the people I know that love insects, that, that really care about them, it's, it's because they find insects wonderful, fascinating, beautiful, important. It has nothing to do with, you know, the fact that pollination services globally are worth, I think, $577 billion a year, you know, <laughs> right. those kind of numbers. They don't actually, they don't really engage people, I don't think. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. Whereas sit someone down and, you know, get them to actually look at some bumblebees on some flowers or whatever, and you, it's hard not to, to get drawn in and start to think, well, actually, these are pretty cool little creatures. And also the one thing that concerns me about these kind of utilitarian arguments for conservation is that they they would, they would exclude a lot of species. There are insects that probably don't do anything particularly vital for us, you know, that they could disappear and we would be no, no worse off. But does, does that mean we should just let them all die mm-hmm. you know it seems to me that in that, that all the life on our planet has a has a right to to continue existing and that perhaps you know we have human rights but we don't we don't um, confer similar rights to to other creatures and, and perhaps we should mm. um, I guess my view is that we have a kind of duty of care in a way for the rest of life on our, our planet you know just because we are we are the most powerful organism here clearly um, but that doesn't give us the right to to destroy the lives of of, of so much else of the the creatures that we share our planet with. I I would say so that that's where I've been going in recent years in in my arguments, and I, I find for most people that's much more powerful. Yes, I, I I can see how that would 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 work. I mean, I was personally struck by three things in in reading your books. 
First of all, you, uh, I mean, for instance, in um, Silent Earth, you finish every chapter with a, a, a nice one-page uh, introduction to some fascinating behaviour uh, among uh, some of the insects. And, um, I mean, many of them I'm, I'm sure are beautiful, though perhaps with an acquired taste. I like wood lice, for instance. <laughs> um, but, but then in a more abstract level, at a, more, at a level of just sort of fascination, really, uh, there are two things that you mention about insect life which I found just really remarkable and, and, and precious. One is that insect life is one of, and indeed the first, of only four times that powered flight has evolved on this planet. So we should, I was always wondering whether, you know, whether we should think of insects as our elders uh, in, in some way. Um, <laughs> and then the other is, of course, the wonder of metamorphosis. But it feels to me that there's so much, as you, and as you said, we, we still don't know so much about insects. You know, in these kinds of um, issues, in these unique roles or, or achievements, almost, of insect life, it feels to me that there's so much still that we, we have to discover which could be surprisingly significant without trying to bring it back to the utilitarian argument. Let, but let's, let's just stick with this issue a little bit longer because you've said that in fact, it's, it, it turns out to be sort of self-defeating in some way. If you present the utilitarian arguments, then in a sense, even though you've confined that language in a way that is supposed to land, it tends not to. It tends to, uh, ironically, just be more water of a duck's back because numbers are numbers and they, they're hard to make meaning. But it's when you actually have some uh, interaction with actual insects that you, you get a sense of um, them being fascinating and important. Is that true? I mean, it, would you say that the best way to convince a sceptic, someone you can give all the arguments and they're just not buying it, the best way to convince them is to, to try and sit them down and uh, get them to look at some insects and, and, and really engage them in the thing itself rather than just the words and the explanations? Yeah, I, I've always had this kind of crazy idea that we could solve a lot of the world's problems if we could somehow get the the big players in the world you know the bill gates elon musk and jeff bezos and co and mm. sit sit them down in a in a you know in a hay meadow full of flowers and bees and butterflies and just somehow persuade them to spend five minutes looking mm -hmm. and and i think it would change them you know i bet they've none of them ever done that uh, and I do find it i find it really odd that um, we we've become so detached from from nature, you know, most people's reaction to insects is is they're frightened. They they think they're going to bite them, like those whatever it was attacked you the other day. <laughs> yes. um, and and they that's the, really their only experience of of insects. And the, you know, they are so fascinating. There's so much we don't know about them. I, I mean, I I often think it's kind of nuts that we spend billions of pounds exploring space, looking out into the universe when we haven't discovered most of the stuff that's right under our noses yet. You know, we we literally haven't discovered the, the large majority of species on our own planet, and who knows what amazing stories they might hold, what weird and wonderful life cycles they probably have that we we've yet to discover. Um, there's a whole kind of amazing world just right here. And uh, yeah, so getting people to engage with that, I, I, I think is, is key somehow, but it's a real challenge to, to somehow break through when the large majority of people at the moment basically don't give us stuff about insects. Yes. 
Okay, excellent. And maybe we'll come back in a bit about um, how perhaps people could get more engaged and, and do this for themselves. But let's stick with the, the, the problems then and, and, and turn to some of the causes. Now, in the book, you list eight, which you, uh, are very, you've given them very nice titles. But I'll, I'll just go through them and, and translate for listeners what, where the, these chapter titles take people. But the first one is uh, losing their home, which is effectively anthropogenic habitat loss, uh, poisoned land, which is pesticides, uh, weed control, which is herbicides, green desert, uh, which is a chapter on fertilizers and nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. And then uh, Pandora's box, which is about the movement of species uh, following human movements. The coming storm, which refers to climate change. Bauble Earth, which was the title I liked the best, uh, which is about light pollution. Uh, and then Invasions, which is about the deliberate species movements by humans. Now, all of this adds up to the, another of your chapters, which is called Death by a Thousand Cuts. But I suppose that we could roughly group these different causes into you know, three different categories. There's a number of them, which is around farming and food and rural transformation. Then there's another one around human movement and then sort of other, other human impacts. Now, this is a podcast about science for the Anthropocene rather than just a hugely valid but limited science of the Anthropocene. We're not just trying to uh, document the problems but trying to uh, engage science as being part of the solution. And so... I don't want to maybe dwell for too long on these causes, but I think we, we do have to dig into them a little bit more. Uh, and so I, I suggest that we just focus on three of them, which seem to be the most significant, and, but also the focus of your own research, and I expect of greatest interest to the listeners. So first of all, let, let's focus on the, the, the number one issue you list there, which is habitat loss. You, you give the, the staggering figure that between 2000 and 2012, uh, the scale of deforestation on the planet meant the loss of forest the size of the whole of Western and Central Europe in, in extending to Poland. That in the 20th century, we the UK saw the, uh, the, the demise or the end of 90% of its hay meadows, plus uh, the removal of thousands of miles of, miles of hedgerows, not least uh, during the Second World War uh, from the food drive. And crucially, uh, you point out that uh, the idea of nature reserves is, to quote, uh, little more than an illusion uh, as a refuge because they are, in effect, small fragmented islands surrounded by sinks. And, of course, mo uh, insects are mobile and they just go out into these uh, dead zones, uh, sort of arable farming dead zones, uh, and then never return. Could you tell us a little bit more about this number one problem? Of course. Uh so it's a really thorny one. You know, we, we've got to feed a growing human population and there's going to be at least 10 billion of us pretty soon and maybe as many as, as 12 billion. And I, it seems to me that, that really the, the biggest challenge, it sounds very grand, but the, the biggest challenge that mankind faces in the coming decades is working out how we feed everyone a healthy diet without destroying the planet. Um, because the way we've gone about it to date is destroying the planet. It's, it's the biggest driver of biodiversity loss, and it's a massive contributor to climate change. And it's also, it's, I would argue that the way we've, this sort of industrialized approach to farming is, is simply not sustainable, um, it, aside from wiping out biodiversity, which means 
it's destroying the pollinators that it depends upon and the, the natural enemies of crop pests that it really depends upon. Um, it's damaging the soil and it's, un, it's, it's destabilizing the climate or contributing about 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to, to, to radically revise farming and uh, find more sustainable ways of producing food. There is a lot of exciting stuff going on at the moment, actually, in this area. You know, regenerative agriculture is 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 getting lots of attention. Um, I was at the Oxford Real Farming Conference uh, earlier this year, and there were, I, th- I think, 7,000 delegates, mostly farmers, all of them trying to to find more sustainable ways of, of growing food. Fantastic. Um, so, you know, it, and I, I'm going to, there's a, there's a similar thing called Groundswell, which is a kind of farming festival, but alternative kind of farming festival, which is uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, so, so things are happening, and there's a lot of research going on in this area, but it, it isn't resulting in, in rapid change on the ground. Um, in part, I, I would argue, because there's, there's a big vested lobby group with, with a strong interest in maintaining the sort of current system or something close to it with all the inputs that they sell and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of um, impeding progress. But I think there is a widespread recognition amongst many farmers now that, you know, we can't just carry on as we, as we were. I should stress that, you know, this is not about blaming farmers or anybody else for, for what's happened in the past. Um, you know, what, what happened, happened. And it, it isn't any more farmers' faults than those of us that eat food, which is, of course, all of us. But we, I, we do need to recognise, I think, that, that this sort of system of huge monocultures drenched in pesticides and fertilisers just isn't, gonna, isn't sustainable long term. And we need to use our considerable brain power to come up with better alternatives that, that mean that future generations will inherit a healthy landscape. Yeah, that's uh, that's excellent. I mean, t- just to focus on uh, the specific issue of, of habitat loss, uh, one phrase that you use a number of times uh, is referring to a so-called sharing versus sparing debate. C- could you just unpack that a little bit for, for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, this is something academics in particular have, uh, in the conservation world have, have argued about for a long time. But the basic idea is you, you can either set aside land for nature and and designate other land for food. So you you, you separate the two issues. You, you look after wildlife in one place and you, you feed the world in another. Um, or and the sharing approach is where you, you try to do both everywhere. You, you try to farm in a way that simultaneously supports biodiversity, which probably might produce less food per unit area, but, but because you're doing it everywhere um, means that overall you, you, you can produce enough food to feed everybody. In theory, that seems like a, you know, an interesting dilemma, which is the best option. But my experience suggests that in practice, the sparing, the separation of nature and food production doesn't work um, for two reasons. One is, is that farming actually needs biodiversity to be sustainable long term. We need to be supporting nature in farmland so that there are pollinators, so that there are natural enemies of crop pests, so that the soil is healthy and so on. And the other is that if you have nature reserves, designated areas for nature, surrounded by areas of inhospitable wastelands, if you like, drenched in pesticides, 
it doesn't work. And that's exactly what was found by the, the German study we talked about earlier. Those uh, malaise traps that were, were on nature reserves, surrounded by agricultural land. And despite the nature reserves being protected uh, and essentially remaining unchanged, three quarters of the insects disappeared. Mm. Um, and I think it, 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 it simply isn't viable. that Nature cannot survive in tiny isolated pockets. Populations need to be connected to one another. Um, so we need a kind of landscape scale holistic approach to, to both food production and nature protection, in my view. Excellent. If we can just take a, a quick digression, uh, which I think is probably relevant for the podcast. You said a number of things there, which I think are, are really uh, important. And I think foreground just how important farming and the agricultural landscape is for dealing with the challenges that we're facing environmentally at the moment. That seems to me to mark quite clearly the distinction between a, a discourse that focuses on the language of climate change and one that is uh, more uh, is broader, involving issues of biodiversity uh, and even uh, the language of the Anthropocene. But uh, if, if, if I can uh, just maybe dig into this a little bit. You, you say also in your book that you, you, you really dislike this word, the Anthropocene, and, and it does have many critics. And uh, I must say that while we use it in the title of this podcast, that doesn't mean to say that we, uh, we think it's necessarily the, the best term. It's just one that's familiar uh, and will hopefully uh, uh, attract the listeners. C- could you just tell us a little bit about, about your beef uh, with the Anthropocene as a word? <laughs> um it's not that I disagree with the term. I mean, I think it's reasonable to define the current era as being dominated by by man, um, because it, it's true. It just makes me a little bit sad. Uh, I don't really want to live in a world mm-hmm. where everything is is unnatural, where nature has been slept, swept away, and and everything is dominated by human activity, which is kind of you know, what, what the term suggests. So, I, I mean, I suppose, you know, I, I, part of my attempts to raise the profile of insects is, is also involves trying to reconnect people with nature and make, trying to persuade people that we are part of nature, that we're connected to nature, that we shouldn't see ourselves as a separate entity that, that's fundamentally different from all the other species on the planet. So I I guess yeah that that's why it makes me uncomfortable. But I I you know reluctantly accept that we are in the Anthropocene, whether I like it or not. Yeah, excellent. I mean, again, that sets up some some nice questions, which we'll come to. I hope in a sec. But let's return back to these causes, and and I, of course I have to uh, refer to uh, your seminal work uh, around neo uh, nicotinoids and and bees, uh, which of course, is very high profile. It's a very high profile issue, uh, as is your work on it. Could you just tell us a little bit about that issue in particular? I'm sure listeners would be very interested to hear about what is the state of knowledge regarding the nicotinoids and, and, and bee populations? Uh, and what, if anything, is being done about it? Uh, crikey, I could talk for about three hours about this. Yes, of but course. I'll, so, yeah. I'll try to give you the very <laughs> short version. Yes, sorry. So, Neonicotinoids are a, they're a group of synthetic neurotoxin insecticides that were kind of invented and came on the market in the mid-1990s. Um, 
and they were mainly used as seed treatments stuck on 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 the seeds before farmers buy them mm-hmm. um and the idea that they they have an unusual property compared to many other insecticides which is they're systemic so they the idea of the seed treatment is that the farmer sows the seed coated in insecticide and the, they're water soluble so they dissolve in the soil um, and then the little seedling sucks up the pesticide and it spreads to all parts of the plant and protects it against insect pests. And that sounds like a pretty neat system. It was billed as being much better targeting of the crop compared to spraying a pesticide where it can drift on the wind and, and blow miles and so on. Um, and of course, it's also the farmer doesn't have to do anything. He bought the seeds pre-treated, didn't have to spray or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they became very popular. Um, they became used on most arable crops around the world within just a, a handful of of years. But within about two years of their initial introduction, French beekeepers started flagging up that their bees were dying whenever they fed on uh, sunflower crops that had been treated with these new pesticides. And it fairly quickly became clear that because they're systemic and they go to all parts of the plant, if the plant flowers and bees visit it, these insecticides were in the pollen and the nectar. And there was a lot of argument and toing and froing, and a lot of I, I, me and many other scientists got involved in doing research on this. And it became established beyond doubt that this was an issue that, that bees were being exposed to enough of these chemicals to, to do them harm. And I should say they're really toxic. I mean, um, neonics are about 7,000 times more poisonous to, to bees than DDT, for example. Anyway, uh, so the European Union in 2013 banned their use on flowering crops, um, things like sunflower and oilseed rape, to avoid bees being poisoned. But then it transpired that that didn't work. Bees were still being poisoned. And we we discovered that, unfortunately, when neonics are used as a seed dressing, they contaminate the soil. And most of them, in fact, most of the coating doesn't get taken up by the plant where it's intended to go. Only, in fact, about 5% of the seed coating goes into the crop. Most of it's going into the soil and the soil water and then getting sucked up by hedgerow flowers and plants in the field margin or going downstream into into rivers and and polluting those with these toxins. Um, So in 2018, when this new evidence emerged, the European Union... Um, and it's a lovely example, actually, of a rare example of governments acting on scientific information. Mm. They took they took the studies that we and others had produced on board, realised that bees were still under threat, um, and so in 2018 they basically banned neonics for most neonics from any use in farming. I, I wish that were the end of the story, but there are two kind of footnotes to it. Uh, the biggest one is that the rest of the world carries on using them. Um, pretty much indiscriminately. Um, uh, so the lessons learned in Europe haven't been transferred elsewhere. And even in Europe, they they allowed the, the ban did allow for derogations to be granted if farmers could argue that there was a need for an emergency use of a neonic. Just in January this year, um, the European Union removed the ability of those derogations, basically scrapped the whole derogation idea. So neonics are completely banned in Europe now. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case in Britain because, of course, we're no longer subject to EU 
law. So Britain remains the, is now the only European country granting derogations to farmers to use neonics, and they did so this spring for uh, sugar beet crops were treated with neonics in Britain, much to the alarm of environmentalists and bee conservationists like myself. Yes. So that's broadly where where we are. Um, Unfortunately, essentially, they're really potent neurotoxins that pollute the environment long term. They last for years in the soil. Um, and all the evidence we have is that they're, they're pretty disastrous for insect life. Um, and I would love to see them gone. The one final thing to say on this, though, is that even if, we, if the world were to ban neonics tomorrow, it wouldn't probably make much difference because they'll simply be replaced by something else which will probably turn out in the long run to be just as bad we seem to be stuck in this endless cycle of just replacing one pesticide with another and we've been doing that since the 1940s with ddt yes that's a very sobering uh conclusion that if i can just add one thing for, for, for the listeners which i was really struck by as the owner of a dog um, is that you mentioned that the, this ban also extends only to farming and that um there are similar drugs uh, used, for instance, in pet anti-flea treatments. So I invite all listeners uh, to, to look at what they're treating their dogs and cats with. But let's let's turn to this issue. I mean, yes, I mean, I've got this quotation from your book, which you say, essentially, there is nothing to prevent exactly the same mistakes being made again with new chemicals. There, there are two ash, uh, aspects to this, which I hope we can just sort of touch on quickly. The, the first is maybe something else you've alluded to, which is, you know, the, the significant interests, powerful, uh, wealthy interests involved in, as it were, not tackling the problem. And um, you, you, you intimate uh, in the book that you had a little bit of a run in yourself uh, with this as a result of some of your research. So could you just maybe tell us a little bit about that? Maybe not just into, I'm not asking for, for dirty laundry or anything like that, but what do we need to learn from the, your experiences of, of the run-in with those interests? So it came as a bit of a shock to me when I came to studying pesticides relatively late. We published our first paper in 2012 on, on this subject. Prior to that, you know, I'd mainly worked on on creating habitat for bumblebees and uh, we published papers about what flower mixes farmers might sow and this kind of thing. And if, you, if you're saying we should have more flowers in the countryside, that's not very controversial. Everyone agrees with you. Wouldn't that be lovely? But as soon as you start saying pesticide X is probably bad for bees, is harmful to the environment, we shouldn't be using it, then you, you come under fire. There's a backlash, which I should have expected, but I naively walked straight into it, I guess. And I, I mean, I'm not the only scientist. Many others that work in this field or related fields have had the same issues. Um, you, you come under fire, you get criticised personally, um, your science is, is undermined, your, your you know, articles appear online saying that, that you've manufactured the data and uh, just... Uh, it's pretty unpleasant. You need to develop quite a thick skin to, to, to get through it all. And I know some scientists have, have given up on, you know, moved out of science because they, they couldn't cope with it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's a real issue when science and financial interests collide. Um, and the, the industry that manufactures pesticides uses a whole raft of techniques, many of them the same ones that the fossil fuel industry uses. Um, to to obfuscate 
to delay, to confuse, to undermine evidence that shows their chemicals in a bad light. And it's really difficult for politicians or the public or even scientists to disentangle truth from the fake news that's being put out there. Um, it, it makes science very difficult uh, because some of the stuff being published is being published by people with a vested interest in finding a certain result. Anyway, it's all it's all rather unpleasant, and uh, um, mm. but it, it does it does reveal uh, this problem that science depends upon honesty, and when there are people involved who aren't being honest, the whole system is is in danger of collapsing. Let me see if I can um, turn that question into maybe something more constructive, if if I can phrase this carefully, which is this is a situation that science finds itself in. To what extent can we look at the problem, though, in terms of science needing to take some responsibility for this? Uh, not in terms of the disinformation, that's just a, 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 a clear um, wrong, but in terms of uh, the default model that uh, scientists are uh, happy to play uh, in the, the, the growth of knowledge about these challenges. I felt reading um, some of your work that this pro this this challenge is is sort of you know, like um, like Sisyphus in many ways, right? That there's this constant uh, flow into the onto the market into reality of uh, new pesticides, you know, other chemicals being sprayed on fields. Um, the, the the scientist takes it upon themselves to 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 test for harm uh, of that particular chemical. That the science it seems to be limited to the interactions of most uh, two chemicals at a time. And then, as you've already mentioned, there is this massive remaining ignorance still about the insects themselves. Is there any way that we can, we can take this problem and, and flip it in some way? And, and, you know, does there need to be a different model for science, a more activist model for science somehow, that we need to be, active, uh, need to be exploring more actively? I... I think that it, it's certainly it's really challenging to to see a good way forward here. Um, the, the approach of mm. where what happens at present is 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 pesticides come onto the market. I think you can make a strong case that the regulatory system that is supposed to stop harmful pesticides coming to market should be beefed up. But that is mm -hmm. it would make it more expensive if more tests had to be done on chemicals before they could be uh, marketed. And that obviously is more expensive for the, the companies that manufacture them, which means they try to block any um, improvements in the regulatory system. So, so that's difficult to implement. So then chemicals come onto the market. And I mean, there are, there are about 500 different pesticides currently in use in the EU, only a handful of which have been subjected to kind of scrutiny by science other than as part of the regulatory process. And it's only when significant kind of evidence comes to light that there's a problem, as it did with the French beekeepers and neonics, that scientists turn their attention to chemical X and, and start, you know, conducting their own independent studies. And then perhaps after 10 or 20 years, enough evidence accumulates that, of harm that, that something might be done about it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's painfully slow. And the majority of, of chemicals on the market haven't been investigated at all. Also, there are these challenges which you allude to that, that it's, even when attention does get turned on to a particular chemical, 
it's very hard to to investigate all possible angles you know the 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 complexity of what happens when organisms are exposed to mixtures of chemicals rather than single chemicals um which isn't looked at at all in the regulatory process and in reality most wild organisms and and for that matter us humans are probably exposed to dozens or hundreds of pesticides and other pollutants simultaneously and chronically. So exposure in the real world is often through the lifetime of organisms. But that's you know really challenging. Most studies in, in the lab focus on acute toxicity over a few days or weeks. So they're not really representative of the real world. So there's all sorts of massive challenges as to you know how do we deal with this? How do we cope with the number of chemicals and the complexity of their possible effects on on wildlife and potentially on us. I don't know if I have a brilliant suggestion for a way forward, but I think perhaps, <laughs> you know, trying to, trying to break it down in, in as we have doesn't really work. We need to perhaps think of a more holistic approach to focusing on the whole systems, farming systems, and trying out, evaluating the environmental health and sustainability of alternative approaches to food production. So you, you, you're essentially trying to, to look at everything at once, look at the whole system and does it work? You know, are you maintaining insect populations? Are you looking after the soil health? Can you maintain crop yields in the long term in a sustainable way? I, I think that would be perhaps a, a, a more productive way forward rather than trying to tease everything apart in a kind of, uh, in the way that we have up until now. Yeah, that's excellent, Dave. I mean, and again, hopefully we will come to that shortly but you, you've you've flagged up some uh, really important points there now the the, the third cause which i'm we're going to just have to skip through i'm afraid because uh, time is running on but i think we just have to mention climate change because it's so important and you, you talk about the way in which it might multiply or accelerate uh, many trends in, in particular in terms of the way in which uh, as maybe uh, climates um, migrate or, or change that uh, this seems to be happening faster than uh, species can migrate. And that as a result, there seems to be a change in species dominance, which favours in particular species that are, are mobile and tough. In other words, uh, probably the pest species. So th this obviously is not a very bright prospect. So, I mean, with this death by a thousand cuts, what I was really struck by, and again, it really encouraged me uh, to uh, invite you to, to onto the podcast regarding this was that there's a chapter in your book where in the light of this very bleak prognosis of where we're sort of going by default, you, you boldly, but I hope uh, rewardingly, include a chapter of creative writing, uh, which imagines your own son in 2080, uh, 2080, sorry, 2080, uh, as an old man in a post-apocalyptic world. I'm, I was just really interested in what it was like for you to write that chapter and did you learn anything and has it changed in any way what you what you do in your own science? Uh, yeah, I, I uh, debated whether to include that chapter and in fact my my literary agent uh, told me I should take it out. Uh, right. to, well, I think you made the right call uh, by, by inclu including thank it. Thank you. Yes. I, I think it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, I'm trying to predict the future so Clearly, the, it's, it could be wildly inaccurate, but I, I was trying mm -hmm. to imagine, I, the idea was to, it's a kind of a thought exercise, you know, trying to pull together what a best guess 
as to what will happen if we don't really pull our finger out and address these big environmental issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I guess what I was really trying to do was explore the, the combined out, outcomes of all these different issues that are unraveling at the moment. You know, people, scientists tend to be very much in silos that, you know, there are the climate scientists and the bee scientists like me or the biodiversity scientists and the soil scientists and so on and so on. But the reality is that the, there is one big environmental crisis. It's, you know, it's the combination of climate change, biodiversity loss, pollution of the seas, the air, um, uh, the rivers and soils with heavy metals and fertilizers and pesticides and plastic particles and over harvesting of fish from the sea and deforestation of the tropics and so on. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's this horrendous combination which is the problem it's a bit like the death from a thousand cuts that's that i describe as the cause of insect decline mm -hmm. um, but uh, but affecting the entire planet so i tried to imagine you know what the outcome of all these these depressing processes would be mm -hmm. on the life of of you know a family living in in england uh, over the next few decades um and you know it, it of course you you I might be wildly wrong, <laughs> but but I, I fear the reality is that an, I, I know I'm very painfully aware at this point that I run the risk of sounding like a kind of crazy doomsayer, you know, man mm. with a placard on a street corner saying the end is nigh. But I really think that our civilization is at stake here, that actually, you know, in the next 50 years, there is a very high likelihood that life as we know it will will crumble uh, unless we really get our acts together. Um, and so I imagine my son, um, having lived through all of this, uh, sitting in the garden, guarding the vegetable patch at night uh, yes. <laughs> against marauders. Um, <laughs> I hope it doesn't come to that. Indeed. I mean, it's very, very interesting to hear you speak this way because... <sighs> See if I can th thread some of the things that you've you already said uh, together in some ways. For instance, you were just saying that scientists happily, most happily, uh, work, as it were, in their disciplinary pots or silos. And that's because, as a scientist, you are trained to speak with authority about that with which you, uh, about which you know and which you have studied and, and to try and avoid doing that on, on other subjects. But as you say, you know, when we're dealing with systemic issues, then that becomes something of a handicap because uh, what we end up with is a picture which is always less than the sum of its parts. Even as maybe within scientists themselves, on their quiet moments speaking to each other, they have a sense of uh, this, this overall picture. Another aspect there, which, which you just uh, illustrated perfectly, is, is the reticence of being a scientist and yet saying, but this is really serious, right? This is this is a this is a big problem. This is a systemic problem. Uh, we don't know how 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 serious it is, but it, it it's it's serious uh, because that seems to um, transgress the boundaries of science into the uh, the visionary or the the prophet, which is a, a role that scientists are trained to and rightly uncomfortable with. What it makes me think, though, is that. And I'm, again, I'm really interested in your own experience of this from doing your writing, for instance, with a chapter like that, is that the, the intellect, the cognitive intellect, 
happily does this job of dividing things up and taking parcel by parcel. The result of that, though, is that you end up with this siloed and incomplete or fragmented knowledge. But there's a part to our humanity which does this integrating very, very well, almost spontaneously, which is our emotional life. And so what I read, um, and this is why I hesitated earlier by saying whether I enjoyed reading your book, because it was, it's, it's very, very sad. You know, and uh, you said you said as much about your response to the word the Anthropocene. It's I mean, it's more than sad. There is there is grief in, in that response. So I'm just wondering whether, you know, in terms of having a science for the Anthropocene, do we need deliberately to cultivate a an, an emotional literacy uh, within science? That it's it's okay, as it were, even even expected. You know, this is the nature of the problems that we're now dealing with. They are serious, and they are uh, they are heading down uh, unless we make some r- radical changes. And we won't be making those radical changes if we continue to do science the way we've been doing science, not just politics and economics. D- does any of that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do. Some days, I I I get really depressed because mm. you know my my whole subject area is is one of doom and gloom really so i don't know why i'm kind of smiling as i say that but uh, mm. it it is hard sometimes to motivate yourself when mm-hmm. you know you know every year there are fewer bees birds butterflies and so on it's and it's this remorseless um uh, process that seems unstoppable, um, mm-hmm. and it would be easy to give up. But I, I, I do think that if we if we're really going to get anywhere, we need to embrace that kind of emotional response and and use it to motivate change. Um, I guess it comes back to the you know how do we argue best for insect um, conservation? Is it is exactly it, yes, definitely. You know, is it is it is it pounds and pence or or is it is it joy and wonder and yes. I, I think it's the latter. love for these creatures yes indeed yeah and yeah. I, I don't think I don't think scientists should be ashamed of saying that they you know they love their subject creature or whatever mm-hmm. yes fantastic well let, let's turn then finally to um, some of the responses that you, you've mapped out in your work uh, which of course is key for this being a, a discussion about science for and in the Anthropocene not just uh, of it uh, uh, diagnosing it. Um, now, you, you list a number of excellent, uh, exciting ideas which cross um, between science, society and politics. You, one idea I really liked, for instance, was actually having proper taxes on agrochemicals uh, which, from which you could then ring-fence the income to revive uh, proper publicly funded pharma consultancy to insist them in changing their practices. Once upon a time, we had such organisations uh, such as ADAS, uh, which is an acronym which I can't spell out right now, uh, but uh, we used to have these systems and, and then they uh, all went. So, you know, if we're trying to transform um, farming uh, within a, a, some, a short number of decades, then we can see that that kind of assistance would be essential and, and some public funding behind it would be good. Another really important line of your work is about greening cities and urban farming. And one of your books is called uh, Garden Jungle, for instance. Uh, so you, you talk about uh, 
the potential to massively expand um, allotments, even if only just to uh, meet the existing demand of 90,000 people waiting uh, for allotments in the UK. But I wonder if we could focus on just two of your suggestions, which uh, speak directly to science and, again, how science itself may respond or change uh, in, in, in the light of the, the, the problems of the changing planet. These two are, first of all, again going back to this idea of reaching the public and especially through education and especially through primary education. And then secondly, in terms of uh, the profound learning that's still to be done in order to realise and normalise alternative uh, modes, especially of farming. So just on the first one then, the, the primary education, uh, why do you emphasise this so much? And uh, wh what does this mean in terms of of science and scientific professions and careers. I mean, for, for instance, do you think that a senior professor like yourself should be engaged in primary education in any way? And, and if so, why? If not, why not? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it seems to me that uh, something we talked about earlier that, you know, I had this childish sort of childhood fascination with the wonder of insects and never grew out of that. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I think most primary school age kids... Uh, given half a chance, they love it. Insects. You take them on a bug hunt, and I, I've taken school classes out, given them nets and pots uh, into a meadow or a wood, and and you know they run around. They get so excited, they love it, and and that it's such a shame that that kind of childish delight mm -hmm. is is often thwarted. That they, they don't get the chance to pursue it. They don't get any encouragement. So that they end up as teenagers who aren't at all interested in insects. They're frightened of insects. Um, and that then stays with them for the rest of their life. It seems to me that if we want to, you know, engender a society that, that cares for nature generally, then we need to reconnect from an early age with nature. And we need to provide opportunity for kids as they grow up to regularly interact, not just with insects, but to learn about nature and the environment and, and food production. So... Um, you know, I, I mean, I was lucky. I had a, a primary school teacher who who knew about nature and took us on nature walks and, you know, could identify tree leaves and so on. But I know it, from experience that the majority of primary school teachers today don't have that knowledge. We've, we've, it's been a long time since these things were routinely taught in schools. And so we've got a generation that's now grown up knowing almost nothing about the natural world. And yes. so primary school teachers don't feel at all able to take their class out on a nature walk because they don't know anything about nature themselves. They've got nothing to say. And so somehow, one of the things I suggest in, in the book is that, you know, wouldn't it be great if um, we could offer kind of continuing professional development courses for primary school teachers where they go away for a week to a field studies centre uh, somewhere nice and learn about, you know, simple things that they could then take back to the classroom and take their kids out and infuse about nature. And so we could then kind of bridge that gap. And uh, I mean, ideally, this would continue right through secondary school as well. There, there, mm -hmm. there is good news in that there's a new GCSE in natural history, which is being introduced at secondary school level. Great. I don't know how many schools will take it up, but that that seems like a really positive step in the right direction. But it needs to start earlier for me. It needs to start uh, in day one of primary school. Yes, that's excellent. I mean, one of the things I like so much about that idea is that you're really foregrounding the issue of joy, right? And we, we've just been talking about very dark um, subject matter. But 
it feels to me that this is, you know, the whole point of a science for the Anthropocene as, a, as, a, as an idea or a conceit is that we do need to face these problems. But if we stay at the level of um, the darkness, then we're sort of trapped. We've trapped ourselves there. And there needs to be this connection, I think, to, you know, to the joy and the, the joy in the bugs, the joy in the nature, uh, but also the joy in the learning, because learning is such an important part of what we're going to have to uh, do. Talking of learning, let's turn to that other bit, which is the need for profound learning uh, in the field, both literally and metaphorically, uh, in terms of the transformation of farming. So uh, IPM here is a very important acronym, uh, Integrated Pest Management. But you, you say that it's, it's poorly defined. Another example here might be permaculture, which involves the close study of a place's ecology uh, before one then tries to mimic those patterns in the agriculture in that place. So what I'm interested in here, Dave, is what needs to happen for science to uh, change in in order to take on these these crucial forms of learning when some of this work will perhaps a great deal of it might be more parochial, more unglamorous, more place-based, small scale, practical um, than uh, you know the, the, the grand findings of the, the multi-million pound uh, funded project. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think one of the one of the issues we have is that we are always looking for technical fixes to to problems, for biotech fixes that you know a slightly different example would be carbon capture where where it seems that there's a widespread belief that the best way to tackle climate change or a, a key tool for the future is to invent some kind of machine for sucking mm-hmm. greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere when actually we have trees and peat bogs that do that really well if we just look after them and often there are there are wonderful natural solutions um, to these problems which which are far easier to implement than than going down the kind of biotechnology or technology approach. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is, is true of farming, that actually much of the knowledge we need to farm in a sustainable way already exists if we can integrate it and share it and persuade farmers to, to adopt it um, rather than looking for, you know, genetically modifying crop varieties or developing new chemicals or, or whatever. Um, and of course, that's, that's usually driven by, you know, the, creates products that you can sell um, and mm-hmm. whereas you mentioned integrated pest management which is a, an approach which essentially treats pesticides as a last resort and encourages biocontrol agents and uses resistant crop varieties and crop rotations and trap crops and all sorts of other techniques which many of which have been around for thousands of years as, a, as ways of minimizing the pest problem. And then if all of that fails, and only if all of that fails, do you turn to using a, a pesticide. That, that approach has been around for a very long time, but it seems to have become sidelined and forgotten. And I think that's where, f- for my money, we need to be really pushing, uh, putting our scientific effort to develop locally appropriate. The, the I, one of the problems with IPM is it needs to be tailored to, to a particular region, to the pest problems and the climate and the soil and so on. So we need to, we need to help farmers um, around the country, around the world, develop an appropriate IPM system for each of their crops and support them 
in sharing that knowledge with their friends and neighbours, um, which I've always thought seems to be the most effective way to get farmers on board. Is Indeed. If you, if you can persuade one farmer to work out how to do something, then invite their neighbours to have a look how it works and they'll readily copy it uh, rather than being told by an academic what they should do. We're, we're nearly done. And two last questions. The, the first of which is I want to invite you to maybe be a bit more, um, to engage your imagination perhaps, which is that I mentioned earlier that one of the things that really struck me as um, so precious about insects is, is the wonder of metamorphosis and the, the fact that with insects we, we can see that th- this essentially magical process is a reality. It's there in nature. It's not just a fairy tale. And that just made me wonder whether this, this phrase metamorphosis is, is used in the, the last book by the, the late, great uh, Ulrich Beck, who was a, a sociologist, a, a great thinker uh, about the transformation of society on a global scale. And he, his last book was called The Metamorphosis of the World. But I'm really intrigued to, to put this idea to, an, to someone who actually knows about metamorphosis, who knows about insects. Do, do you think there is anything that we can learn or, or even take heart in regarding our current predicament and that of the planet from the existence in nature of this magical process of transformation? I guess, in part, it illustrates how extraordinary the the evolutionary process is. And metamorphosis is is almost magical. Um, And yet it it, it is simply the result of of evolution over huge periods of time uh, that can accomplish the most extraordinary things. And and there's no doubt at all that that life on our planet will, will adapt and recover um, eventually, uh, I guess the key thing is whether we're part of that or 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 it has to happen after we've destroyed ourselves. Yes. Um, um, but you know, th- th- there've been mass extinction events before, and and within a few million years, an amazing diversity of new wonderful creatures have have emerged to replace them. So, you know, life on Earth will continue. We might feel like we're, we're you know, get, it's easy to get depressed and think we're going to wipe it out, but actually we're, we're not. It, it will it will go on and who knows what amazing beasties um, might, might emerge. But if we're going to be part of it, then we need to change. Um, we, we, the humans are amazing creatures you know our, our real strength is when we work together in, and and we seem to work well together in small groups as we did when we were hunter gatherers wandering around the earth um, um but we seem to be pretty hopeless at working in big groups and when you know there are billions of us and we seem utterly incapable of cooperating uh, at that level uh, we become selfish and tribal and uh, and and squabble and bicker over who whose fault it is. Yes. Um, somehow we need to translate that that the the power of our, our ability to be altruistic that works at a small group level and somehow in, make it work internationally. And if we could do that, then we could solve all of these environmental problems. I'm sure. Um, but at the moment, we seem to be failing pretty miserably to cooperate internationally. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. So let's just, the the last question almost follows on perfectly from where we just got to there, which is, again, this is a standardised question uh, with which we end the podcast, uh, which is to say, if we are proverbially going over the cliff uh, and we urgently need a new science for the Anthropocene, 
Will we learn to fly? I, I guess I, I hope we will. <laughs> um, the, you know, we, we have to have hope. And I mean, actually, the, the final quarter of my, my otherwise rather depressing book, Silent Earth, is all focused on, you know, on hope, on having depressed the hell out of people. That's meant to motivate them to act. Mm-hmm. And um, if we can mobilize enough of us to change then then you know there is a bright future we it's not it's not too late um whether or not we can do that i'm not entirely sure but uh, only time will tell i guess indeed well dave gorson thank you so much for a, a fascinating discussion and uh, thank you all for listening as well if you've enjoyed this podcast please tell just one friend uh, and uh, uh, see you next time thanks very much <laughs>